is dedicated to the mastery of one Mr. Ralph Baschke. See here, episode 37. It's January 2017. It's a new year. It's a fresh start. What a brilliant new world we're entering. Hang on, wait, what? Oh, okay, never mind. Anyway, you're listening to See Here, episode 37, where the podcast that discusses music-related films. If this is your first time, welcome on board. We have a back catalogue, go through them. But if you want to start from here, welcome. We're going to be talking about an interesting film tonight, today, this morning, whatever time you're listening to. But I should introduce my compadres, my co-hosts, the wonderful people on the other end of this magnificently working Skype connection. First of all, in Bath, in England, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good uh, evening. Good evening to me. Good morning to both of you and thanks for getting up so early you don't know the half of it <laughs> and returned from his triumphant tour of the antipodes mr tim merrill over in seoul happy australia day yeah happy australia oh, day morris yeah thank you there, there are some people who have uh, different political opinions about it they call it invasion day australia day we're not going to go through that we're not political here we're musical we're filmic that's what we're going to do well, and Morris, it's, uh, it's a day off work, I understand. So whatever the reason, correct. that's all good as far as I'm concerned. Nice, nice day like... to go to the pub. So what is the best thing that we could do on Australia Day? We're going to talk about a film called American Pop. Yes, folks, that's the most patriotic thing we could do today. So what we'll do is we're going to quickly go to a break and we're going to listen to the trailer for the 1981 film by Ralph Bakshi, American Pop, and then we'll be back to discuss it. You're listening to See Here. Salmi should have been a star. The kid's a genius. But there were complications. Benny could have been famous, but life got in the way. It ain't no use to sin, wonder why, babe. Tony had a brush with success. You the one who writes the songs? Don't you know I'm nothing without you? But had to let it go. I want you to play one of my songs. So it was up to Pete to grab it, hold it, and make himself heard. Working on a night move Trying to make some front page driving news Working on a night move One family. Some music I love. Four generations. This is work. This is play. In love with the sound of American pop. Ralph Bakshi, the creator of Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, now takes modern animation a quantum leap forward with a motion picture of incredible beauty and remarkable power. Dance to it, drive to it, sing with it, or swing with it. If you can crank it up, plug it in, or switch it on. If it assaults your senses, rocks your body, or touches your soul. It's American Pop.
And we're back from break. Thanks so much for joining us. This is C here, episode 37. Once again, myself here in Melbourne, Bernie over in Bath and Tim in Seoul. And this time around, we're going to be discussing the uh, 1981 film by one Mr. Ralph Bakshi. The film is American Pop. And just some of the IMDB details. The writer of the film was Ronnie Kern. The main voices for the film, one Mr. Ron Thompson, who plays two characters, Tony Belinsky and Pete Belinsky. Maya Small as Frankie. And actually, an interesting bit of trivia, I discovered that she was Candy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jeffrey Lipper as Zalmi Belinsky, presumably the older Zalmi Belinsky. Belinsky and Rick Singer as Benny Belinsky. IMDb lists this as the story of four generations of Russian Jewish immigrant family of musicians whose career parallels the history of American popular music in the 20th century. Okay, Tim, this was your pick. What made you pick American pop? Well, there were several reasons I decided to go with this one. I saw this actually Back in the day of the dinosaurs with my kid brother on a Saturday afternoon, we went to the Odeon Theater back in Canada and we saw the uh, double bill of Ralph uh, Bashi's Hey Good Looking and American Pop. And I remember at the time, the big music, animated music movie was Heavy Metal. Mm. And that was the one that kind of got all the accolades. But I remember, you know, seeing the advertisements for this on television and it really kind of blew my mind that, you know, they were going to go through the whole history of American rock. And I thought, man, I got to check this out, you know? So at the time, like I said, my kid brother and I, I had to be about, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years old when I saw this. And it was stunning on the big screen. And it was just something that had always stuck in the back of my mind. I mean, we've got our roadmap of uh, music films that we want to cover. And this was one that it was always kind of floating in the back there. And all of a sudden, something just made it pop up again. And I thought, that's the one. And I thought that this was a film that was, it was a financial failure. But I think it's a film that needs discussion. And it's an important film to basically uh, stand out you know, it's a, it's a film for me that I thought is worthy of discussion. Bernie, what did you think when you first saw this? Or was this your first viewing? This was my first viewing. To be completely uh, honest, uh, I'd not even heard of this before. It's completely mm-hmm. out of left field for me. Obviously, I know Ralph Bakshi. The only thing of his I've seen, I've seen the uh, the Lord of the Rings film, which seems to get a lot of stick, but uh, I remember quite enjoying that. You've never seen Coonskin or... Um... No. I've never seen as it heavy none of traffic. the Fritz the cat heavy traffic and any of the Fritz the two I've Fritz seen, films. I think Ralph Bakshi only did one of the Fritz films, didn't he? Or did he actually do both? I think he did the, just did the first one. Yeah, no, I've I've seen the second one, but not the first one. I've seen the Nine mm-hmm. Lives of Fritz the Cat, which I'm sure wasn't right. Bakshi. I've never seen Wizards. A complete blind spot for me. I mean, obviously, I know of him. But this, uh, I've never really kind of investigated stuff, so it was really interesting to see this. The visual stylings that Batsky uses in this is very comparable to another film that we covered recently, Yellow Submarine. I'd say there's an aspect of it because there's a little bit of rotoscope that is used in Yellow Submarine, particularly, I think, through the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds sequence, and there's a lot more heavy use of uh, rotoscope. I, I, I was thinking more along the lines of the photography. How they how they use photography and yellow submarine in the background and, oh, okay. and how I got you. yeah yeah and how Ralph incorporates a lot of that into the, into this film that's what I meant how it was comparable not so much the rotoscope right. but just the way that he kind of uses history or actual yeah. figures you know and, and the back and forth right I'd say probably the the major comparison between the two is that both films have an an incredible visual style. Someone who had an artistic vision uh, put each one of these films together. This wasn't just sort of tailor-made for an audience. Unlike, say, like the the big animated houses in America, you know, your your Disney's and your Hanna-Barbera's, which were just putting things out for the Saturday morning morning visuals for the kids. This was Bakshi, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think was probably the only animator in America at the time who was working to make films or animated films for adults. Right. Well, that that was what I was going to say in the introduction that I I, I neglected to do so was the fact that the 14-year-old me that saw this was in no position to really appreciate what I was watching. You know, I mean, I, I was just there for the loud music and just for the popping visuals. But, you know, to go back and look at it again, it was quite a different experience. You ain't laughing. Well, you ain't laughing because I ain't finished yet. You'll know when I'm finished, then you'll be laughing. 
If you ain't, then I'll be crying. That ought to be good for a few laughs. Now, this wasn't actually my first time watching this film. Funnily enough, I think maybe it was about three years ago, three, four years ago, I'd invited Dr. Zom to come on Love That Album. You know, he'd already been on about two or three times. And he'd actually suggested that we discuss this film on the Love That Album podcast. And I went and watched it, and I don't know what happened, but, you know, we didn't end up doing that. But I did watch it back, as I said, about three, four years ago. And so I was sort of looking forward to having another viewing for See Here to see what I thought. And... I'd say that I have mixed feelings about the film. I think from a scope perspective, what Bakshi tries to do is really, really ambitious and very admirable. And visually, it's just, it's a real feast for the eyes. The artwork, the backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, the, the background artists have done an absolutely fantastic job. And I do love the rotoscoping. I, I read in some reviews there were people who saw the rotoscoping as problematic and too visually distracting. I have nothing but praise for how they did that. So from mm-hmm. a visual perspective, I just, I'm absolutely in love with what I saw. My problem was that there's too much that they tried to fill in within a 90-minute film. This needs to be something that was, you know, if you're going to tell the story, if you're going to really give the story of these four generations, you needed like a TV miniseries, six, seven, eight hours. Absolutely, you're right, that it is almost like a miniseries. And you know what this kind of reminded me of is almost something like... uh, even though it was it was a failure of a film, was that Michael Cimino film, Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. you know, or it almost seemed like a Godfather, like, you know, like a Coppola movie, like a miniseries, or it, it seemed like you, you could have spent 10 hours telling this whole story. I could see Scorsese doing it like for HBO, like he did with the uh, vinyl series, mm-hmm. you know? I could totally see something like that with this. Sure, sure. I think it's... Uh it's quite apparent that it doesn't work particularly well not particularly well but it, it doesn't kind of it's a bit too over ambitious in that respect because he kind of focuses on one era in particular and one sort of character in particular you know the four generations i felt that that benny got pretty short shrift really as did his father to be honest zalmi it was almost like we need to get through these little bits quickly so we can get to the point where i'm actually a bit more interested in the counterculture and what's going on and the story i kind of want to tell so right. it, it did feel like the the first two generations were kind of shortchanged a little to me anyway basically it sounds like you're from your perspective you're saying that it's less of a parallel of the complete story of 20th century pop music as more well let's just focus on the 60s well yeah yeah to me it's almost like an onion where you know at the very beginning with the rabbi the first generation it's like he represents kind of purity and then his son zalmi gets into the whole entertainment shtick with the chorus papers and all that and then he becomes a little bit more dirtied, so to speak. And then his son, Benny, doesn't want any of it. And he's not a very, you know, he's, he doesn't take any of it seriously, being an entertainer. But then his son, Tony, gets even more muddied. And then Tony's like the very end of it. And then Pete, when Pete comes out, Pete's almost muddied. But he manages to find a way to kind of go back to the music, you know? Does that make sense? There's two interesting things about that development. You mentioned about, like, the pogroms that Zalmi escaped at the beginning of the film while they're still in Tsarist Russia. And his origins, uh, Zalmi is the son of a rabbi, comes from a very orthodox Jewish background, and then each generation gets diluted from their Judaism. And then at the very end, we get this moment where, you know, Pete is a you know junkie to rock musicians and he's walking into a studio but he sees this Rabbi, yeah he's, he's uh, humming a tune under his breath and then Pete stops and listens to it and sort of gives him an indication like hey I dig that so there's partly about the music but also partly about maybe it coming full circle that yeah, he discovers right. this spark in him about his origins for a while I'd sort of been thinking well this is a story about the parallels between 20th century America and there are historical points which they both put in the opening credits and that they show along the way of mm-hmm. the film. You know, the, the New York garment district fire disaster, World War Two, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. So a parallel between American history and American music. But I think overall, when I sort of thought about this for a while, it's really a story about the American dream. 
Right. And, you know, yeah. you, you get each member of this family is, you know, they're taking a little step. So, you know, Zalmi, he, he loves to sing, but he gets shot in the neck during World War One, and he can't sing. He can't do anything with music, but he encourages music to Benny, who uh, becomes a great jazz player. But he goes to World War II and he can never fulfill that dream of making it big. But at least he sort of got something artistically right. And then right. his son, Tony, is a lyricist and he sort of has the brush with fame by being a lyricist to a band that makes it big. But then we finally get his son, Pete, who at the very end of the film, he's gone and achieved that American dream, that American success. So right. it's about the American dream. He achieves that uh, success, that American dream, by essentially being a coke dealer in the right place at the right time. Right, <laughs> right. How right. cynical right. is that? Hey, what else you got there? Songs. You scoring songs now too? Giving them away. A song announced. By who? Me. You can keep the songs, man. I will keep the coke too. I have a problem, though, with is really this what three generations prior had suffered through. Mm-hmm. For, you know, is this what the American dream is not to be artistically great? It's to have millions of screaming kids worshipping you well, while you prance around the state. But I think it's different for everybody, right? What everybody was chasing was a different endgame. Pete saw where Tony came from, and he, and he saw, like, at the very end, like, there's a line... Where he says, for three years, I've been fetching for you guys and I've been hustling and doing all this shit. I'm done. I want it now. Like, you know, I want it. All he wants is them to just listen to him play a song. That's kind of the thing that goes back to Zalmi, where Zalmi is like, give me a chance. When he when he's up there singing, when he's the uh, he's the grown up baby kid with the hat, he's already you know too old. It's like, nah, give him a chance, you know. Like, let's see what he can do, you know. And I think in the end, that's kind of like Pete. There's a parallel to that where Pete's just kind of like, look, you know, if you don't want to let me play one song, then I'm going to take my blow and I'm going to split. And they're like, no, 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 man, don't split. He's like, you know, there's an interesting thing. I mean, Pete's not looking for, you know, the multi-million. He just says one song, just listen to my song, you know. And, and, and it's the same thing because first he's denied by Tony. You know, when, when when he's sitting there on the bench with Tony and he goes, you know, I, I, it'd be nice if you listen to my music once in a while or give me some pointers. And Tony keeps saying, go back to Kansas. Yeah. Go back to Kansas, you know. And, and then he, you know, and to add insult to injury, he goes and hawks Pete's fucking guitar. And then he disappears and he's gone. And then the guy shows up with a big bag of dope. And he says to Pete here, man, don't sell it all in one place, you know? Well, it, it's different for each generation, as Tim That's said, what I'm isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of goalpost shift and what people would sort of deem as success in the 70s or early 80s mm-hmm. is, is different to what his great-great-grandfather was kind of struggling for and aiming for and hoping for. I, I think it, it does a fairly good job of showing that. I'm just sort of concerned, though, that the very end, I don't know, maybe it's just a thing that I have with the values of it. It's saying, right, well, we're going to celebrate Pete's success and this is the American dream and isn't it great? Rather than, there's nothing like a little hint of irony saying, right, well, this is what you were working towards. Absolutely. And And, yeah, no, I I understand that, Maurice. I I can absolutely see that point of view. Enlisted. What do you mean you enlisted? I like the hat, Pops. Hey, Benny, you got a wife now. You got a kid coming. So? Need a steady job. Honey, you're talking a steady job. You got a steady job here. No, Pops. This isn't work. This is play. In a film like this, we're sort of juxtaposing real events in American history, and they're using a lot of music. I think there's something like 50 songs that we hear in part or in full throughout the course of the film to illustrate the history of American music. And then when we get to the whole point of Tony being a lyricist for this band, 
they're rewriting history. Tony's not coming up with new songs or or the the writers of the film are not coming up with new songs. All of a sudden, this band is the one that has gone and written Grateful Dead, Somebody to Love. When the truth is found to be the ones who have written Hard Rain by Bob Dylan and later on Pete is the one who's written Bob Seger's Night Moves and if Ralph Bakshi had had his way it would have been Freebird but they couldn't afford it. Well Freebird's uh, actually at the end of the I was going to say film. doesn't it play over the credits at the end? Yeah. Yeah. As I understood it the actual songs you hear in the films are the original songs by the original artists. Aren't they? There's this moment where you see the band rehearsing doing uh, Hard Rain. Yeah. Right. And and get your shit together, guys. This isn't good yeah. enough. And right. it's, it's really her it, it's, singing. With, it's a really interesting but, conceit to have well, the original songs by the original artists, but in the narrative of the film, they're being performed by somebody else as a kind of rights issue as well. I don't right. know whether this film is actually even available through sort of normal means these well, days. I don't know whether... No, it's not. And well, whether, well, whether that's a music rights thing. Well, they, they said apparently because Bakshi had been held in high regard because of his earlier films, yeah. he managed to get the rights to a lot of these songs rather cheaply and people who would have normally said, no, you've got to pay through the nose, said, no, we respect your art, that's fine, you, okay. can, you can have our song. But it took, like, I think until 1998 before the film was available on, uh, okay. on home right. video. But um, I was going to say with the band, you know, one thing that I found interesting is, I mean, they could have shown Tony writing for so many different acts. But I think the thing is, is they were trying to just keep it, rein it in and focus on just, you know, the relationship with him and the girl and the band. And the band was like, you know, an amalgamation of the Jefferson Airplane and the dead and Janis Joplin and all of it. I mean, yeah. like well, it, she was uh, she was very definitely uh, kind of Janis Joplin and maybe a bit of oh, yeah. slick or someone. Oh, it, yeah. She? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I understand why they did it the way they did it. And again, like you were saying, Bernie, about how music being played in different ways, like original music, Mm. how did you guys feel about that? I mean, like, I thought there was a couple of things that I really, really liked. Like, for example, the Pat Benatar hells for children when he's just walking down the street throwing out bags of dope to people. I thought that was kind of that was kind of cool the way that 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 came across. And I've also got to admit, I love the way that he did night moves with the piano. Where he's yeah. just like, I, I just thought like that was amazing the way they really pulled that off. Even though, you know, I'm not the greatest Bob Seger fan, but uh, I just thought that was really neat the way they and the way that they show the guys up in the booth and they're like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. okay. And then you see the tape start rolling, and then you see him on the phone, and then it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's on. I have no problem with telling a fictitious story within the real world. I mean, that's what film and literature is all about. But where you start sort of combining a film that has acknowledgement of real artists and then rewriting history to say, well, we're going to take pretend that these other real artists like Dylan and the Jefferson Airplane didn't exist, and we're going to amalgamate them into this fictitious band that, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm crazy about that level of story, well, right? But I kind of know what been. you're saying, Morris, but if they hadn't used original songs and then basically just got a group or some musicians together to kind of do facsimiles of songs from that period, right. then I think the film probably would have suffered because of it. It's difficult to say, but I'd rather it was the original songs, even tweaked in the narrative sense. It goes back to what you, we were talking about your place one day, Morris, about you know when you present history, you know. In a media format, the minute you're trying to, you know, get people interested or entertain them, then the history loses its legitimacy. For every, even, even a simple documentary that's straight ahead, you know, and, and 100% factual, still edits the film. It still, you know, adds soundtracks. It still adds, you know, narrators. In so many ways, it's really hard to accurately just present straight up history, you know. And if you're going to do entertainment, then you have to throw out the legitimacy all out straight out of it. I mean. 
mean, mm-hmm. you know, you can't have 100% straight legitimacy in any of it. I mean, so I think that's you have to take it for for what it is. It's art. Yeah. But it's I, not it's not a straight presentation of history. I am going to make one more little gripe, one more little quip. And this is being nitpicky. But another issue that I have with the film is timeline. And you're never quite sure when they skip from one era to the next. Not really quite sure at first where they are. And when they move straight into the section with Tony as a grown-up, so like when he's in the beatnik era, and you hear in the background of the opening shot just before we see Tony as a, as a grown-up, uh, you hear in the background some radio about the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg trial. Right, right. And they were executed in 1953. And the music you hear in the background is Herbie Hancock's Cantaloupe Island. And you figure it's one thing where you're using music to set a mood. But if you're going to be historically, you know, even historically rough, you know, give it a year or two. I'm not going to be fussy ever. If you have music from 1954 when it's 1953, that's okay. But, you know, you're going 11 years hence. You would have thought, you know, just... Yeah, I know they're trying to be artistically correct, but right. also you might as well be historically correct. Sure. Well, that's it. It wouldn't have been sure. difficult to pick something from that period to put sure. there I just in the scene, would it? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Consider it like this, too. I just listened to somebody say something recently that even autobiographies are never 100% accurate because we're basing it all on memory. And our memories are really faulty, too, right? So, I mean, if you look at the film, almost like somebody recalling a time, like, you know, you know, almost like somebody saying, yeah, I remember this and I remember that. And, but they don't remember it exactly the way things ever really went down. You know what I mean? Like, there's always that error or that kind of misunderstanding. The further away you get from an incident, it becomes right. the thing in your head right. and the... You know, right. as opposed to the actual incident, your right. memory of that incident isn't necessarily... It's like this the Rashomon thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's nothing else in this film that uh, speaks of an unreliable narrator. No, that's and true. Yeah. That, that, just, that was just, I don't know, just one little sloppy bit right. for me. Well, I think that's, um, uh, as you were saying earlier, Morris, I, I think it tries to encompass a little bit too much. Its scope is too wide, and because of that, there are a few little sloppy mistakes and errors and right. corners that were cut. You see? No. You play guitar? No, no. <laughs> Everybody plays guitar, man. <laughs> Everybody plays a guitar. Hey, man, well, what do you do? I write songs. All right. <laughs> words or music? Right, words. I don't know nothing about no music. Yeah, we can see that. One thing I wanted to touch on before I forget is the actual art of this film. And I have to say that there are moments in this film and especially in the beginning that are just absolutely gorgeous there are points in this film that correct me if i'm wrong or i don't know if you guys would get the same vibe but it really looked like to me like the art of like degas and chagall Mm -hmm. and um there was a lot of almost like points of where i saw things that reminded me of classical pieces you know yeah it just it just really i just thought it was just absolutely astounding the way and, and even the way they were to incorporate it looked like almost like watercolors and then it looked yeah. like oils and yeah. then it looked like you know like it was just phenomenal and just the level of the level of care that they put into putting it on the screen like that is just phenomenal oh there's no doubt that the visuals of this were made with a hell of a lot of love and really i think that he's he's gone and thrown down his scope or his you know, his ambition right from the opening credits where you get these moments of you get like these still paintings or drawings of moments in american history be it the landing on the moon be it watergate world war ii all these visuals mixed in with paintings of great musical moments in 20th yes, century yeah, yeah. america and that takes on a different visual style from, I think, a lot of what else that we see in the film. So he's come up with something seriously beautiful. This really is art. 
And another thing where I'm guessing that this is due to the rotoscoping, I've not been a comic book reader in many, many years. So forgive me if I'm out of line, if I'm wrong about this, but it seemed to me that a lot of what I saw here in terms of the way how the characters spoke or expressions on their face looked like what I would see in a comic book rather than what I'm typically used to in other American animation of the time, what we would see in a even in a more realistic, inverted commas, looking Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which yeah. just always looked like a cartoon. And comic books are always going for something, or at least the ones that I remember, look like they're going for something more realistic or more... Well, uh, I think um, Bakshi, I mean, obviously he came sort of came to prominence during that kind of counterculture period of the late 60s into the 70s and if you look at his body of work all his films have definitely got that sort of comic booky vibe right so there's definitely a correlation between what he was doing and what the sort of underground people were doing you know you have crumb robert crumbs and gilbert shelton with freak brothers and so on and even the more kind of you look at wizards or something like that i, I mean i assume yeah. not having seen that but a big sort of vaughn bode influence there Richard Corbin, all those guys who were kind of, right. as he was in his way redefining and experimenting with animation, right. these guys were doing the same thing in comic books, and you can tell they were the yeah. same period and they were taking from each other and incorporating that, you know? So I think you're actually right. spot on there, Morris. I think that's a definitely valid point. And you know, now that I think about it, Bernie, this whole film is almost like the graphic novel before the graphic novel. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. This is no, it really, the way they incorporate the boxes and the little yep. sketches and like, all of this is like the it's like a graphic novel before the graphic novel it's, yeah it's it almost just, well I, I was going to say it's almost a mixed media kind of approach not quite mixed right. media but variations on the same thing and different moods created by different styles of artwork or coloring or it's, it's definitely all there i also want to mention that i like the way how he frames a lot of his shots because he, he's actually framing it like a filmmaker who just happens to be working in the animated medium. So, for instance, I want to sort of talk about a couple of scenes in particular that I found impressive in that way. There's one scene which I like visually. I, I get a, a bit of a creepy vibe from it, even though it's supposed to be romantic, but I get a creepy vibe from it otherwise. But visually, there's the scene where uh, Zalmi, he's in the vaudeville theater. He's backstage. He's dressed like a clown, and he goes to Bella, the stripper's costume-changing room, and he, he approaches her and then we see his face, the look on her face, and they're basically mentally seducing each other. And then you see a shot of his face, a shot of her face, a shot of his pants dropping. <laughs> and then and then it goes straight to the dancing girls on the uh, vaudeville stage. And that's something that's I think he's really thought this out very well from a visual perspective, from a framing perspective. I hate to sort of be making the distinction between a filmmaker and an, and an animator but if you're comparing for the time what maybe disney or hanna-barbera and i hate to sort of make that comparison but that's what was happening in american animation and i don't think they would have ever gone and thought about framing their shots in that way it was this is what animation does and this is what cinema does but bakshi was thinking very much right a, a non-animated yeah, yeah. Right. director mm. so so I, I love visually that style you know you see mm -hmm. his eyes her eyes right his legs her undoing the strap on her shoes right just these little touches there's a real tenderness in a lot of the film you know like in, in points with the animation you know like even though you know, it's hard and you know and sometimes you know like the characters are deplorable sometimes there's like a real tenderness to it I think as well that, um, that that scene and there's a couple of other scenes throughout the film, it's kind of a mission statement. It's there to sort of remind you, actually, no, this isn't Disney. This is a grown-up animated yeah. film. This is a sophisticated yeah. film. And we're going to throw right. things like this in there because this is how you need to approach watching the film. You know, so, Here's something I noticed, too, that was interesting is that they actually use real character actors as models mm -hmm. for the people in the film. And I don't know if you guys are familiar or you know the name Vincent Chevalo. Yeah, he's, he's a, yeah, I know. He, yes. Yeah. He's a character actor. It kind of looks like a 
bloodhound. He had that long droopy face. He he was really famous character actor with a long face. You'd know him to see him. Anyways, I spotted him in this film. He's one of the. And was, he, was he the was he the one in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I know exactly who you mentioned. Yeah. The droopy face. I know exactly who you're right. talking about. He's yep, in yep. this film. He's one of the characters. I mean, it was I think it was Zalmi's dad when he's talking to him there in, in, in the, front of the one club of the clubs. At the start, yeah? yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I'm going, holy shit, that's Vincent Chevalo. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was kind of neat how they, they kind of, you know, used actual people as models. Like, I, I, that was that was kind of a cool move. Well, apparently, yeah. I, was, I was reading on IMDb, some of the uh, rotoscoping they actually did with scenes from other movies. There's the, a dance scene at the start. I think it's when he's dancing with Bella, is it? Right. Is apparently Jimmy Cagney and someone else from... There we go. Rotoscope footage of James Cagney and Gene Harlow dancing from the 1931 film The Public Enemy is included right, in enemy. the ballroom dance scene when Belle is singing Bill. Huh. So how about that? That's crazy, isn't it? Yep. I mean, they, they also used a lot of the main voices in there. They did their own rotoscoping for them, too. So I, yeah. I think when um, they said right. the, the main voice of Tony and Pete, uh, Ron Thompson, he said that, you know, there's that moment in the film where he's jumping carriages on the train, which uh, made me think of Bound for Glory. But he said, like, they got him set up in a real studio and he was jumping over planks to uh, to simulate what they would then put in the drawing of him jumping carriages in uh, the train. So there's a lot of their own rotoscoping, but it's mm-hmm. interesting that you said that they, they yeah, knew it was, stuff from uh, other films. I think it's only a couple of scenes they used it from. They used it right. during, but i got to say as well, I mean, harking back to what we were talking about earlier, and just the animation in general, I love the rotoscoping in this i think it works really really well and it's just something you don't ever see it anymore a lot of people see it as cheating like there's a lot of you hear a lot of naysayers that say that you know it's almost like batsky uh he traced he, he kind of had the training wheels on but it's like no he didn't i mean like i would like to see somebody actually try to animate rotoscope like trying yeah, do what yeah. he does you you can't do that like i mean plus it's you know, you know that it's a tool that you know the animator uses to get where he wants to go with the film and you know how is right. that different to any other well the funny thing is today is everybody relies on cgi yeah yeah and yeah. Every, and everybody says oh well you know uh, you got to be technical with CGI. You got you got to have skill. But then they laugh and they look at rotoscope and say, "What is this shit?" Yeah. And that's that's where a lot of people actually went after Ralph for the Lord of the Rings. I mean, mm-hmm. when he he put that film out, everyone said, "Oh, that looks like shit," right? But then they look at what Peter Jackson's done with the CGI and with all that uh, that 4K um, the sped up uh, film that he was doing, and everyone says, "Oh, that's gorgeous," and it's just like. No, no, that looks. Like I mean, shit. you know, yeah. one, one thing was done with with hand by hand. I mean, back in the day, that was all manual. Even if it is cheating in inverted commas or however you want to approach it, there's a certain level of craft that goes along with that that is different oh, yeah. to just kind of knowing how to code CGI these days. Well, I don't know. Maybe they are. They're different skills, aren't they? But. I definitely appreciate, though, that what they have come up with here is it's art. Yeah. It's just, so if, if nothing else, I mean, like, you know, okay, let's, let's forget for a sec the rotoscoping of the characters in the foreground. But if you're looking at, like, scenes in the vaudeville theatre with the crowd or uh, moments during World War Two, is all the background stuff would have been done by background artists. That would have all mm-hmm. been hand-drawn. And, you know, they, they remain still while stuff moves in the foreground but so they're combining all this and there's there's real art that's going on there and that's just i don't know i, I it really annoys me to think that people were giving bakshi crap for uh yeah for me too. i like agree that. i agree i think so it's beautiful I, yeah for all the narrative problems that i think the film has and i, I think there are a lot but as, as something to just watch it is definitely impressive right. I, I just want to make mention of one more scene that i thought worked really well in, in the film and I'd be surprised if it wasn't in your list of favourite scenes as well and that the one where you know Benny he's out on the battlefield in World War 2 and he's walking through bombed out area enters this house and sees a piano and he gets his pangs to start playing the piano again he thinks oh wow I'm far from home I might as well just play on this piano and there's that German soldier who comes out of the rubble
Danke. And sees him and Benny catches sight of him and then starts changing it to a German tune. And the German soldier sways back and forth. And for a moment, they're sort of joined by the power of music. And the, the German soldier says, Danke, and then proceeds to kill him. It's visually impressive, but it's also, it's a really emotional moment. Right. Well, that's what I was trying to say earlier about these tender moments in the film. You know, it, these film, these moments that are very heartfelt. I mean, like there's... Also, the bit where uh, when Pete's the kid and then they wind up in Kansas with the band and Pete comes sniffing around and he says, you know, yeah, like, you know, like my dad, I don't know anything about my dad. And then all of a sudden, Tony's just like, Kansas, Kansas. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, shit. Or when they're sitting on the bench and Tony gives him Benny's harmonica. Belong to my father. I'm giving it to you. Why? How do you think? Yeah, and yeah. you know, they, there's there's just little little things that really you know are really heartfelt in this film. I like but, that scene where uh, Pete kind of comes out the shop with some groceries, and he comes oh, back yeah. over the road up into the apartment, and he gets some uh, cornflakes ready for uh, for Tony, and Tony's like, oh, I don't want no fucking cornflakes. It's just <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just a really nice little. I mean, I mean there's no need for that to be in there other than to give the characters some depth and a connection and this is going to sound weird but i, I got just at that one moment i got a complete joe buck and Rizzo. rizzo yeah <laughs> sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah. i like at the end you know where you see pete when he's grown up and he stores that bag of groceries and he goes back and he winds up opening up the piano and dumping all that stuff into the into the piano that's right, <laughs> right yeah right. yeah Okay, so um, any more thoughts overall about the film? Any highlights? Any other qualms you haven't mentioned till now? One thing I have to say, and I and I have to give the utmost respect and ultimate props to Ralph Basky because here's a guy through his whole career that made a whole absolute lifetime career of kicking against the pricks. Here's a guy who had a vision to make Fritz the Cat, you know, despite all these people saying, no, you can't do that, you can't do that, and he says, just watch me, you know, and then doing Heavy Traffic and Coonskin. All the films that he's made have never been commercially successful. Even when he was in Hollywood, he did Cool World with uh, Brad Pitt and Kim Bassinger. That was as high as he went, but it still it still wasn't a commercial success. But Ralph didn't care. I mean, he's done television with Mighty Mouse. He's done a number of videos. Ralph did a video for Paula Abdul. And, oh, didn't yeah, he like, do the one with when she's dancing with the cat? In right. The, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's the one I'm talking about. Shit, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I didn't realize that was and, him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think he did that. And, like, there was, you know, he's done so many different things as an artist. And, you know, and today in this day and age, we, a lot of people would say that you're not successful until you've made it, you know, until, you know, you're recognized, until you're a household name and all these other trappings and bullshit but ralph is an artist first and foremost and he's a guy that's always stuck to his guns and with this project this is just an absolutely beautiful work of art that it's not for everybody and i have to give props to columbia too for putting this out at the time because i mean it's not really for kids but then i don't see a lot of adults wanting to go see this either that's it it's amazing to think uh, that somebody would have greenlit this thinking yeah there's an audience for this out there somewhere right because of heavy metal, because yeah. of heavy metal just, and other things. Yeah. I mean, let, let's just say that that film, by some miracle, had been made today. Because you know, in nowadays, I mean, there's still obviously a lot of animation for kids, but the idea of animation for adults is probably less foreign than it was in 1980. Uh, even despite the fact that Bakshi had a history of making films for adults over the previous 10 years, but now that 
adult animation is seen as more of a thing, would a film like this have been more successful in 2017? I could see this being an actual series or something like through Adult Swim or uh, some type of cable. Like for there's all kinds of animation now that is really highbrow. And I mean, and I'm not talking motion pictures. I'm talking like for television, you know, or yep. internet internet series. I yes. could see this being a series i really could i was going to say that that's the thing i don't know whether it would work as a movie as a theatrical kind of release but certainly like you're saying tim in, in another kind of medium online tv whatever i think something like this would probably work really well yeah imagine if ralph had done the whole history of american pop in like 10 minute little bites on youtube yeah it would be like okay here, here we are about hendrix here we are about this point here we are about punk and and then they just do these 10 minute little vignettes, you know, like that, that, you know, that would be incredible. And then they'd be able to put it all out on a Blu-ray and you could just play them right from the beginning and go through, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd buy that. All right. So basically, you know, once again, from my perspective, I agree with you both that you know, visually magnificent plot, somewhat overarching, even through its lack of character development or not giving us enough, enough story. I don't think that story-wise it's a failure, but probably, you know, as you've just been saying, Tim, it warrants a, uh, a mini series, uh, you know, or these these ten minute segments. That's another approach. But if it had just been done as is, but padded out for you know eight ten hours to give a much more comprehensive story, you get much more of a feel for the characters following their journey over a longer period of time. Right. But with you know this some great level of plot development, and it could have been a really great success. So well, here's something to consider: if this ever gets released to blue. Ray. I'm hoping that maybe there's a possibility, and I know I know Baski had uh, has he's notorious for leaving a lot, doing more than less, and it would not surprise me if this ever gets released to Blu-ray that there is additional footage. Mm-hmm. Huh. And hope, and I'm, here's to hoping somebody like Arrow or or one of these kind of boutique labels in the future could ever put this out. Because I would love to see a high-definition version of this film. Like, oh, that it would, would look just... amazing, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. shit. I mean, and I mean, I got lucky enough to see this on the big screen, like 35, when I was a kid. And that was stunning. I mean, in my local little theater in my hometown. But again, like I said, at that age, I, I really couldn't appreciate what I was watching. I timed the past two hours on a Saturday afternoon with my kid yeah. brother, you know? I enjoyed it. It's, it's certainly flawed. I yes. think it's a little overambitious. But the, the concept is great, and the execution is, you know, it's it's almost there. It's kind of 80% there, I think, and um, it's certainly worth checking out. Whether right. you're a fan of music, or, well, one would assume you would be listening to this podcast, but or just a, a fan of animation, or just something that, you know, is definitely got that despite the uh the kind of sweeping history it tries to cover it definitely has a sort of counter-culture-y sort of vibe to it so, right and if, if you've got an interest in that kind of thing as well it's, it's definitely worth a look so flawed but um interesting definitely can we tell people where to find this if they want to watch it absolutely this is on vimeo i know that there are some people who sort of say oh you know have a have a problem with you know looking at films on on sites like youtube and vimeo but Unless if you can buy it, if you can find somewhere a DVD copy that you can buy, go for it. But if you can't, it's on Vimeo. Right. Uh, and we'll, we'll post a link. America. We'll post a link with the show notes and you'll be able to find it. We will. Okay, so the way how 2017 is going to map out, we've I put up a post a few weeks ago asking for requests from uh, the listenership. So we have four film requests coming up over the air and we'll be uh, uh, discussing those and hopefully we might even get some of our requesters to come and join us for those discussions. Always welcome. But next month will be uh, just um, our our choice or in particular, I should say, Bernie, your choice for, uh, for just, February. What have you got Just for little old me, just my choice. Just your choice. <laughs> I mean, our, we serve our listenership. Of course, there. of course. We serve our listenership. Well, but, it is, it's, we'll, um, we'll it's, uh, it's apt that you bring up the... Um, requests because this one was actually suggested by somebody after the requests had closed okay but it was one that i've kind of had on my list for a while so this is one that rodrigo mentioned Uh, so he'll be happy to hear that next month we're going to cover the 1973 film payday featuring rip torn as a outlaw country type singer and all the whiskey women womanizing and uh, misery that uh, that brings, I guess. 
So okay. 1973's was, Payday. Was this the one, I think, during the shooting of this where he got into that fight with Norman Mailer? Um, I don't know, possibly. I don't know. Have you, uh, you ever seen the footage of that with him and Mailer getting no, into it? No, Oh, it's craziness. Well, craziness. We'll get in it. Well, I'll, I'll let you watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Rip Torn and Norman Mailer. Wow. Huh. I don't even remember that request. I don't think I've heard of this one. So, uh, okay, looking forward to checking it out. Uh, okay, so Payday from 1973, and that'll be uh, episode 38 in uh, February. Uh, that it will be the film that we'll discuss. So uh, looking forward to your company then. Just some quick housekeeping details. If uh, you want to uh, join our Facebook group, and why not? We're all friendly people, and we'd love to hear more suggestions from you or some feedback about the show or just some general discussion about music-related films. We'd love to hear from you. So uh, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. You can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. You obviously know that anyway because you've gone and downloaded this show, but just thought I'd get that out there. I think that pretty much covers all the uh, housekeeping stuff. So uh, we're, we're a monthly podcast. If, if this is your first time listening to us, just be aware we do this once a month. Don't be looking for us every week because, frankly, we're all pretty lazy. Uh, but one, once a month we can, we can manage, and we hope that we can count on your uh, listenership. Please spread the word that we exist. Uh, you, as well as getting us from iTunes, you can also find us at seehere.podbean.com and any of your other favorite podcast catching applications. And before I forget, uh, I'd like to uh, wish all our listeners and our new listeners a happy new 2017 health and happiness to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, it can't be worse than last year. <laughs> oh, dear. Why am I laughing? Because <laughs> so, uh, until... otherwise you'd be crying. Don't want to do that. Okay, so until next time, watch some great movies, listen to some great music, and just generally be nice to each other. We need it more than ever. Okay, yep. so we'll see you in uh, February 2017. All the best. Cheers. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.